Thank you for joining us for another episode of the Key Life Fellowship Men's Bible Study. In this series, Pastor Kirk Hall will be teaching through the book of the Bible known as the Revelation. At this time, open your Bible as the Holy Spirit unveils God's truth to your heart. You guys, go ahead. You know where we are. We will be here for quite some time. Open up to the Revelation, and we are going to be looking at a few verses tonight. And they are some exciting verses, I assure you of that. As we progress in the study, you're going to see it gets better and better and better uh, the more we travel through this book. So we are at verse 4 tonight, and we're going to be looking at verses 4 through 6 in what is the proper greeting, as we would title it in the Revelation. John is going to start this greeting uh, with his name, uh, again, confirming, and we've talked a lot about him, confirming the human authorship, because if you've studied the Bible any amount of time, you know that we believe in dual authorship. We believe that God used these men, and he led them along by the Holy Spirit to write these things down. Um, And we see that he starts off with John, and he's going to let us know who the author of this is, and he's going to give this greeting. In this greeting, we're going to see that there is a gift, and this is a gift from the triune Godhead. Uh, If you don't believe in the Trinity, you will tonight because we're going to see him so clearly. Uh, The Godhead will be so clear. We are going to see God the Father, God the Spirit, and God the Son. I know that through some of you have curved because you have always said God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. There is no order that it has to be mentioned in when we talk about the persons of the Godhead. The reason that I mention in that order is because when we see him tonight, uh, it is going to be God the Father, It is going to be the Holy Spirit, and then it is going to be the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's for a purpose, because it's going to go into a doxology about who He is and what He did when He came to this earth in His first advent, His first coming. And so we're going to look at this. We're going to see the gift, or gifts, it's a two-part gift, that the Trinity is giving to, and we're going to see the seven churches of Asia Minor. We're going to see that this gift, as I said, is two parts. I'll explain those parts in detail. You know about both of them. It is grace and peace. And we know that grace and peace comes from the Godhead. And He makes that possible. Grace and peace and the Father. Grace and peace through the Holy Spirit. Grace and peace through the Son. We're also, as we look at those gifts that he gives to the church, we're going to see an interesting number that's going to pop up. This number is going to pop up many times in the Revelation. That is the number seven. And we will see the number seven tonight on two occasions. We will see that he's going to address the seven churches in Asia. We also are going to see that he uses the number seven to describe the seven spirits of God. We will talk in detail about what that means, but this number seven is significant throughout Scripture. And you're going to see in the Revelation it's very significant, and there will be lots of numbers that have some significance. We know that in the theological circles as the study of numbers or numerology. Now, just because there is a number doesn't mean that that number necessarily is symbolic. It might be a literal number. But we're going to see that the context of what we're studying the direct context, or the context of cross-referencing scriptures to find out where um, in the Old Testament we can see these things that, that the prophets may have pointed to. We can see why these numbers are important and what the symbols of those numbers actually mean. So when we get to those numbers throughout the Revelation, let me just tell you this, don't be freaked out by them. And don't think that every time you see a number in scripture that it's some symbol. Again, the context is going to let you know this number represents something literal. We'll look to see what is that something. Oftentimes in the context, this number just stands alone. When a number stands alone, doesn't give any indication that it is symbolic at all, guess what? It's a literal number. Take it for what it is. So we're going to see throughout the Revelation that we will come in contact with numbers, as we do, so that I don't overwhelm you by all the numbers that we will see. As we do, we will talk about their significance as we go. So we see the number seven. We're going to see the seven churches, Asia Minor. Um, 
we're going to see the seven spirits of God. That number seven, because we are going to see that number tonight, that number seven is God's number of perfect completion. It's going to be important that we understand that, not just here, the rest of Revelation. And anytime you study Scripture and you get to the number seven, where it is used symbolically of something that has to do with God and His kingdom. We're going to see that the number seven always, when it is symbolically used, points to God's perfect completion. So as we open up tonight, let's read it together. Revelation chapter 1, verse 4. It says, John, to the seven churches in the province of Asia. We know this is Asia Minor. We know this is what we know as modern-day Turkey. Grace and peace to you from him who is and who was and who is to come. And from the seven spirits before his throne. And from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and has made us to be a kingdom and priest to serve his God and Father to him be glory and power forever and ever. Amen. You can shout when you get to a doxology like that. I love that John starts this out with a doxology as the Holy Spirit is inspiring him to write these things down. We're going to talk a lot about Christ tonight. I'm going to tell you this. We're going to look at a lot of Scripture tonight. I hope that we can get it all in. So we're going to jump right in tonight. I want us to see the gift because as I have already mentioned in this lesson, and the title of this lesson is A Gift from the Triune Godhead. This is mentioning a gift from the Trinity to the seven churches of Asia Minor. Now, this is also a gift to all churches throughout the ages because that number seven Though they were seven literal churches, they represent the churches of Christ throughout the ages. I'm not talking about the denomination of the church of Christ. I'm talking about the blood-bought church of Christ throughout the ages. And so we're going to see that these churches in the next several weeks are going to teach us so many valuable lessons. We're not going to spend a whole lot of time on them tonight, specifically, but I just want you to understand that God is, through John, giving the blessing and the gift that he promised in chapter 3 to these churches initially. Remember, he promised, I mean, in verse 3, excuse me. Remember in verse 3, last week he said that if you read this, you'll be blessed. If you hear this, you'll be blessed. And if you're obedient to what it says, and you do what's contained in this revelation, you'll be blessed. He then starts out talking about a blessing or a gift. That gift is exactly what he said. Grace and peace to you. Grace and peace to you. To who? To the seven churches in Asia who represent the complete and perfect number of the churches throughout the ages. Meaning this, because we have this in our hand, because we are reading it, because we are hearing it, because hopefully we are going to take its word to heart, we can say that the triune God is blessing us and offering us the blessing of grace and peace. Grace and peace to you. This is a gift to the seven churches, but it is the gift of grace. The gift of grace. John, in his gospel, chapter 1, verse 16, it says, from the fullness of his grace, we have all received one blessing after another. Who here is thankful for the blessing of God's grace? From the fullness of that grace, we've received blessing after blessing after blessing after blessing. John here is reminding us of the wonderful gift from the triune God of grace. Grace allows us to be saved. We know this, don't we? That Without the grace of God, none of us here would be saved. I can ask everyone in this room who is a professing believer, did you save yourself? And your answer better be no. For it is by grace that we've been saved through faith. This is a gift of God and not of works. Ephesians says, why? So that no man can what? 
so that no man can boast. We have nothing to boast in other than thank you, Lord, for your grace. Thank you for Christ and his sacrifice, which allowed us to access God's grace. And so God's grace allows us to be saved. He's writing to the seven churches and he's saying, from the triune God, and we're going to see that's exactly what he's saying when we get there, grace to you. God's undeserved, unmerited favor found only in Christ to you. I can't think of a greater blessing out there than the grace of God. He's saying to you, to the church, this is yours to receive. This is a blessing. I am offering this blessing, this gift up front. Grace to you. Undeserved, unmerited favor. That's the basic, simple definition of grace. We find that in Christ. We know this in Romans chapter 3, verse 21 says this, but now a righteousness from God apart from the law has been made known, which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Him as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in His blood, and He did this to demonstrate His justice because in His forbearance He had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. And He did it to demonstrate His justice at the present time, so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. It is Jesus and his work that allows us to receive the grace of God. This grace freely justifies all who have faith in Christ. Do we deserve it? Absolutely not. Is it the greatest gift that we could ever receive? Is it the gift that keeps on giving, doesn't it? Or sin increases, grace does that much more increase. Or if you learned it as I learned it, where sin abounds, grace does that much more abound. At the beginning of this wonderful letter, he's offering the gift of grace. God's undeserved, unmerited favor. God's chosen method of salvation. Why did God save us by grace? Because that's how he chose to do it. And we know that the simple answer is this, because if he saves us by grace, he receives all the glory for it. And we're going to talk a lot about his glory when we get to the doxology at the end of this. We see it's God's method of salvation is grace. That's how he saves. Ephesians 2, 8, 9, I've already quoted it. But it is by grace that we've been saved through faith. It's not of ourselves. We know this. So if it's not of ourselves, we know that it is a blessing, a gift directly from the Godhead. Without grace, I can assure you this, not a single soul in this room would be saved. We would all be hopeless and helpless, still consumed by our own sin and our own wickedness. Now, I know you guys wanted to study the Revelation so you could learn about dragons and ten-horned animals and all this other stuff. But isn't it interesting that John starts this out talking about the grace, the gift of grace that God has given to His church, to those of us who are in Christ. Not only grace, he says grace and peace. Grace allows us to be saved. What does peace do for us? Peace through salvation is what God uses to grant us the peace that He desires for us to have. Remember before you were in Christ? You were at enmity with God. You were hostile to God. You were an enemy of a holy God. There was no peace between you and your Creator. But through the gift of peace that He has given us in Christ, we now have peace with God. Romans chapter 5 says this in verse 1. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. John is coming out of the gates, speaking to the church, and saying, you've been gifted with grace and with peace. Peace with God. A peace that you didn't have before Christ. Colossians chapter 1, verse 15. He, talking about Christ, 
is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by, by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers, rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church, and he is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, watch this, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Peace because of what Jesus Christ did for us at the cross. Peace with God. Peace from God. Remember Jesus in John chapter 14 as he was there making the promise of his Holy Spirit to his followers in his day. He says this in John chapter 14, verse 25. He says, all this I have spoken while still with you. But the Counselor, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I have said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. He was promising them the peace that comes from the Holy Spirit. Peace from God. I'm thankful for the peace that I have with God, but I'm also thankful for the peace that I have from God. The Holy Spirit living in me each day as a follower of Christ who gives me peace in every situation, in every circumstance. And the Scripture says this about this peace. We know it, Philippians chapter 4, verse 7. It tells us that it's a peace that transcends or surpasses all human understanding. You can't put a price tag on that, can you? The gift of God's peace has no price tag. Now, the entire gift here, grace and peace from God, is priceless in all realms. All the riches of the world would shrink in comparison to the grace and the peace that we have received from a triune God. John is starting out with this reminding them, grace and peace to you. Grace and peace to you. This offer or gift of grace and peace is a very popular theme in the New Testament. We see it throughout the letters to the churches, throughout the epistles that we see. The term grace and peace to you in reference to the believer appears in, you can write these down, Romans chapter 1-7, where it says grace and peace to you. 1 Corinthians 1-3, grace and peace to you. 2 Corinthians 1-2 speaks of the grace and peace that belongs to the believer. Galatians 1-3, grace and peace. Ephesians 1-2, grace and peace. Philippians 1-2, grace and peace. You say they're all at the beginning of these books. Yes, he begins with a reminder. You have been given a gift by the Godhead. Grace and peace. Colossians 1-2. Grace and peace. First Thessalonians 1 Thessalonians 1.1. Grace and what do you think it is? Peace. 2 Thessalonians 1.2. Grace and peace. Titus 1.4. Grace and peace. 1 Peter 1.2. Say it with me, class. Grace and peace. 2 Peter 1.2. Grace and peace. Revelation 1-4, as we're looking at tonight, grace and peace to you. Where does grace and peace come from? It comes as a gift, and it comes as a gift from God. A gift from the Trinity, from our triune Godhead. Let's look at this gift of grace and peace as it is described for us in Revelation. He says, as we read on, Grace and peace to you from Him who is and who was and who is to come. We've seen the gift. Let's look at the giver of grace and peace. And we know the gift is grace and peace. Let's look at the giver of grace and peace. It is the triune Godhead. Each person of the Trinity participates in giving grace and peace to the believer. We see first the Father, from Him who is 
and who was and who is to come. Who is, who was, and who is to come. This is in reference, obvious reference, to our glorious God and Father, the eternal Father, the source of all blessing. Exodus chapter 3, verse 14, he describes himself as, I am that I am, Yahweh in the Hebrew, the great I am. When he refers to himself in that manner, he is referring to himself as the one who is, and who was, and who is to come. He is the I am. We know when we see that in the New Testament, it is ego I me, which is the Greek for the Hebrew Yahweh. It is the source of all blessing. We know that grace and peace comes from the Father. Grace and peace to you from Him who is and who was and who is to come from the Father. How do we know that is speaking of the one who is and who was and who is to come as the Father? Well, we know this. Who is speaks of His eternal present existence. He is. He is always and eternally existed even now. If He existed in eternity past, and we will talk about that in a moment, and if He will exist in eternity future, and we will talk about that in a moment, He exists now. The One who is. He is here, omnipresent, with us, now, the one who is. Psalm 139, 7-10, the psalmist here describes him. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me, your right hand will hold me fast. The psalmist understood this. He is Present, the one who is. Yahweh is present. He's here with us now. He's present. He is the one who is. Psalm 46, 1. The psalmist says, God is our refuge and strength, an ever-present help in trouble. What a promise. No matter what you are going through, Yahweh is present. He is the one who is. See, I'm going through a tough time and I feel like I'm all alone. If you're a believer, let me tell you this. You're not all alone. His grace and His peace, they are with you. Why? Because Yahweh is always present. You can bank on that promise from the Word of God. He is an ever-present help in your time of need. That means He's never going to not be present. He's the one who is. But it also says He is the one who was. We can look at the eternal past existence of God. The holy uncreated one who has always existed. You say, I can't wrap my brain around that. I know, isn't it good? To know that my ever-present Father is so big that we can't even fully understand Him. When we think about Him in eternity past, always existing within Himself, totally self-existent, we know that as the aseity of God, He's in need of nothing, no one. Nothing caused Him. He is. Again, going back to His own name. I am. He is. He has been in eternity past. Psalm 90. The psalmist says in verse 1, Lord, You have been our dwelling place throughout all generations. Before the mountains were born, or You brought forth the earth and the world. Listen to what the psalmist realizes about Yahweh. He says this, From everlasting to everlasting, You are God. Who is who was in eternity past, 
And he also says about the Father who lavishes his grace and peace upon us, he says this, who is to come. Speaking of his eternal future existence, he's never going to pass away. He's never going to die. His reign is never going to end. The psalmist describes this in Psalm 102, verse 25. In the beginning you laid the foundations of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands, and they will perish. Watch this. But you remain. They will all wear out like a garment, like clothing. You will change them, and they will be discarded. But you remain the same. The immutability of God. He is going to remain the same. He is going to exist forever. And your years will never end. The children of your servants will live in your presence. Their descendants will be established before you. Oh, we're going to see this at the end of the revelation when the dwelling of man and the dwelling of God is now reconciled and we will live with the one who is to come for all of eternity, forever. Why? Because he is the one who is to come. He's never going to perish. He's never going to fade. When the mountains fall, the earth disintegrates, he remains the same. What a comfort that is. That the one who remains the same, who is, who was, and is to come, offers us grace and peace. Grace and peace from the Father, the great I Am. John says, grace and peace to you from Him who is, and who was, and who is to come. And from the seven spirits before His throne. The seven spirits before His throne. I told you the number seven is significant. The number seven in Scripture represents perfection or completeness. He's talking here about the seven spirits, or better put, the sevenfold Spirit of God. This sevenfold Spirit of God symbol, symbolizes for us the complete perfection and nature of the Holy Spirit. He is complete and perfect, just as the Father is complete and perfect, just as the Son is complete and perfect. Perfect. He is co-equal, in essence, to the Father. Please know that. When we talk about the triune God, it's not like the Holy Spirit is this lesser being. He is co-equally God. So when we see Him and we see the Scriptures talk about the sevenfold Spirit of God, it's talking about the complete perfection of the Holy Spirit. That means this. He has seven complete perfect characteristics. We are receiving grace and peace from the Father who is, who was, who is to come. We are receiving grace and peace from the Holy Spirit who is sevenfold in His characteristics. You say, where do you get this from? I told you we can cross-reference things and we can find out the truth. Isaiah chapter 11. Isaiah 11 Two, as we look at the sevenfold Spirit of God. 11.2 says this, The Spirit of the Lord will rest upon Him, the Spirit of wisdom and of understanding, the Spirit of counsel and of power, the Spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. Let's break this down so that we can understand it. What are those seven characteristics of the Spirit of God? And we'll see this. If you've walked with Christ any amount of time and dwelt by the Holy Spirit, you're going to say, yep, I, I know this one because I see that in my life. I see God's work in my life in this manner. Oh, yeah, yeah, that one. Oh, seen it. As the Spirit moves in me, and as I walk in the Spirit, I walk in these things. The first one is this, the Spirit of the Lord. He says the Spirit of the Lord will rest upon him. This is his sovereign nature. Holy Spirit is no less sovereign than the Father, who is no less sovereign than the Son. So as we look at this, we see the Spirit of the Lord, that the Holy Spirit living inside of us is sovereign God in spirit, living inside of us. He goes on and says, the Spirit of wisdom. In fact, James says this. He says, if you lack wisdom... Ask for it. Where does it come from? 
It comes from the characteristic of godly wisdom that lives inside of you through the indwelling Holy Spirit. Isaiah goes on and says the spirit of understanding. Oh, how do we approach the Scripture? Lord, give me understanding. Where does that understanding come from? For the believer, it does not come from some outside source. For the believer, it comes from the indwelling Holy Spirit who gives us what? Understanding. How can we properly interpret the Scripture? Why can we open the revelation that everyone else has been so afraid of for so long and say with confidence, the Lord is going to give me understanding? Because He graciously does through the sevenfold characteristics of the Holy Spirit. Spirit of counsel. Counsel. All the best counselor in the world, my friends, lives inside each of you who have Christ. He dwells inside of you. He is the one that Jesus promised to the church. I'm going to send you another comforter, another counselor. He was talking about the paraclete, the Holy Spirit, who would come alongside of all of the believers and counsel them. That's why we, we pray, Lord, I'm making a big decision in my life. I need peace. I need peace from your Holy Spirit. We seek Him for counsel. I pray that when you make decisions in your life, you wait until you have received counsel from the Holy Spirit. And that He agrees with grace and peace as He allows that to rest upon you. Don't be like these foolish people who wait for the Holy Spirit in an audible voice to say, hey, do this. No, He's indwelling you. He's counseling your inner man. It is nonverbal communication. But He's giving you wise counsel through the Spirit of counsel. The Spirit of power. We know that Spirit of power is where we get boldness from the Holy Spirit. Boldness. Remember, Jesus told His believers, when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, you will receive power. That word in the Greek, dunamis. It's where we get the word dynamo and dynamite. It signifies energy. You'll get a bold energy to go out and do what? Be a witness. To share the Gospel. To proclaim the truth that Jesus Christ is the only hope for lost sinners. To do that with boldness and with power. It comes from the Holy Spirit. Spirit of knowledge. Knowledge. We're not talking about knowledge as the world defines knowledge. We're talking about the intimate knowledge of God. The indwelling Holy Spirit allows us to know more about God. To understand His attributes, His characteristics. To understand His love. To understand His grace, His mercy. To understand His forgiveness. But to also understand His indignation and His holiness and His wrath. And to see Him for who He really is. The Holy Spirit gives testimony to us of those truths as we study the Word of God and the Spirit inside of us agrees. And the spirit of fear. And that spirit of fear is not, ooh, I'm afraid. We don't fear the judgment of God any longer because we've been set free from the judgment through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. This fear is reverence. Reverence toward the holiness of God. I can assure you of this. The Holy Spirit reveres the Father who reveres the Son and so on and so forth from every direction. Why? Because if the Godhead does not respect His own holiness, how are we expected to re respect His holiness? And so this fear is that reverential fear and trembling. Where is that in the lives of so-called believers? where we approach the throne of God in fear and trembling, we realize that the only way that we approach Him is through this gift of grace and peace that John is referencing here in the Revelation that comes from the Holy Spirit, that comes from the Father. That grace and peace allows us to confidently approach His throne in our time of need. Revelation 3.1 speaks of the seven spirits of God. Revelation 4.5 speaks of seven burning lamps before the throne, and he says, which are the symbol, or which are the seven spirits of God. This is confirmed 
Zechariah chapter 4, verses 1 through 10. You can go there and you can read that when you have time. Revelation 5, 6 talks about the seven eyes of the Lamb, which symbolize the seven spirits of God. This is the sevenfold spirit of God. I can assure you of this. The Father and the Holy Spirit work in full-time unison and agreeance. The Father, the Spirit, and the Son all working together for the good, pleasing, and perfect will of the triune Godhead. So we see this is talking here about the Holy Spirit when it references the seven spirits before His throne. We know and we have seen, if you have studied the tabernacle or the temple, you've seen that candelabra that has seven candles upon that candelabra. We know that it is called a menorah. When we look at that menorah, we can know this. It is a symbol of the seven spirits of God that are before the throne. Those seven spirits of God that are before the throne. Hebrews chapter 8, verse 5. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 24. Both of those verses confirm that those things in the tabernacle are copies that we had on this earth of heavenly things. That means this, they're symbols of things that are in heaven. And there, at the tabernacle, just outside the Holy of Holies, was a seven-stemmed candelabra representing the seven-fold Spirit of God, which is before the throne in heaven. The Holy Spirit gives grace and peace to the church. Where would we be without the grace and peace that is continually supplied through the Holy Spirit? That grace and peace that we need daily in our lives as we are being sanctified and becoming more like Christ. It is grace and peace from the Spirit of God that allows this to happen. He says, grace and peace to you from Him who is and who was and who is to come. And from the seven spirits before His throne. We have the Father. And we have the Spirit. But I told you this was a gift from the Trinity. So there must be the third person of the Trinity. And I'm going to tell you this. John, when he starts talking about Jesus Christ, will start talking about Jesus Christ. And then, as we will see, he will go into a beautiful doxology of exactly what Jesus Christ did, praising Him for it. From the one who was and is, is to come. From the seven spirits before His throne. And from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. From Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, the firstborn from the dead, the faithful witness, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. Let's break that down. The faithful witness. What is he talking about? Faithful witness. We know that this is an obvious description of the Lord Jesus Christ, but what does it mean when we call Him the faithful witness? He is the true witness. The true witness. In fact, He spoke to Pilate in John chapter 18, John's Gospel, verse 37. Pilate says, you are a king then. Jesus answered, you're right in saying I am a king. In fact, for this reason I was born, and for this I came into the world to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. We know that Jesus is truth. He is the true witness, the one who came from the Father to testify of the Father's love and to testify of the plan of the Father to redeem sinners through the blood sacrifice that Jesus made for us on a cross. He is the true witness, the one who came from the Father, the one who came to this earth sacrificed himself on a cross. He was buried. He rose again three days later after his death and his burial. 
We know this, that he later ascended back to the Father, passing on to his followers the testimony so that they could go out and be witnesses of what Jesus Christ had come to testify to them. So he is the faithful witness. He is a true witness and a trustworthy prophet. The one who came from the Father testifying to nothing but the truth. Please know this, when we talk about the office of prophet, and Jesus was a prophet, but he was so much more than just a prophet. But he is the trustworthy prophet. We talk about the office of prophet in the Old Testament, they didn't get second chances when they missed something. They got it right all of the time because they truly were messengers of God. They did not handle the Word of God and truth unwisely. Jesus is the trustworthy prophet who came testifying to truth. Hebrews chapter 1 says of him in verse 1, In the past God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed heir of all things and through whom He made the universe. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of His being, sustaining all things by His powerful Word. And after He had purif provided purification for sins, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. He is that trustworthy prophet. The author of Hebrews said in times past, God spoke to our forefathers through prophets and through many different various ways. In these last days, he has spoken through the trustworthy prophet, the perfect one, the Messiah, the Lord Jesus, the Christ. He is the faithful witness. It goes on then to say that he is the firstborn from the dead. Now, don't interpret that, the first raised from the dead, because we know this. The Old Testament, there were people who were raised from the dead. In the New Testament, in fact, Jesus himself raised people from the dead. It's not talking about the first raised from the dead in the sequence of time or in chronology. It's talking about the firstborn. And when we look at the firstborn in the Greek, it is a Greek word, prototokos. And the Greek word prototokos, it signifies preeminence, not time. Meaning this, Jesus is the premier one raised from the dead. The most important or the supreme resurrected one. That's what it means when it refers to him as the firstborn. It is not talking about Jesus being born. It is talking about Jesus being resurrected with preeminence and supremacy. Not only was he resurrected, but he is the resurrection. Remember when Jesus had that conversation in John chapter 11, just before Lazarus, Lazarus was raised from the grave, he spoke to his sister and he told her this, I am the resurrection and I am the life. He's more than just a person who was raised from the dead. Lazarus was a person raised from the dead. Jesus Christ was the preeminent one raised from the dead. The supreme one. The most important resurrected one ever. Will we all in, undergo a resurrection in the future? Absolutely. Will any of us be supreme or preeminent in that resurrection? Absolutely not. He is the resurrected one. And because of His resurrection, we now have the promise of our resurrection. Because we died with Christ we were buried with Christ, and because Christ rose again, we will also be risen with Christ at our resurrection. So we see it says that he is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. The ruler of the kings of the earth. The psalmist says in Psalm 2, verse 6, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will proclaim the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son. Today I become your father. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. You will rule them with an iron scepter, and you will dash them to pieces like pottery. Therefore, you kings, be wise, be warned, that you rulers of the earth, 
Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest He be angry, and you be destroyed in your way. For His wrath can flare up in a moment. Blessed are all who take refuge in Him. He is the ruler of the kings of the earth. He is the sovereign ruler of all. We are speaking of the sovereign rule of Christ. He is prophet. He is priest. But let us not forget, He is also king. and He is the king of all the kingdoms on the earth. He is king of kings. He is Lord of lords. That reference to His kingdom is a reference to His eternal kingdom, but it is also a reference to His coming earthly kingdom, which we will talk about in great detail in the days to come. It is talking about His current sovereign rule in the unseen realm, that He is supremely ruling over all things, all things visible and invisible. Nothing happens without His sovereign approval. John 3.35 testifies to that. It says, The Father loves the Son and has placed everything in His hands. Matthew 28, 18. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. The ruler of the kings of the earth talks about his current sovereign rule. But it also talks about his future sovereign rule on the earth. As I said, we will study that in great detail. He will rule on this earth visibly. Visibly from the throne of David. In fact, Jeremiah chapter 23 will take a sneak peek there. Verse 5 said, The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up to David a righteous branch, a king who will reign wisely and do what is just and right in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will live in safety. This is the name by which he will be called, the Lord our righteousness. The Lord our righteousness is referencing Christ way back in Jeremiah's day, speaking of His earthly throne. Again, I know you want to get there, but we're not there yet. We're going to get there, and we're going to talk all about that, what it means. But I want us to not pass up the good things that we come to before we get there. I've already had questions about rapture and millennium and tribulation. Why would we skip over grace and peace to get to those things? Why would we skip over the majesty of our Heavenly Father and the power of the sevenfold Spirit of God and the glory of Jesus Christ? Why would we skip over those things to get to events? That's where most people mess up when they approach this book. As we walk along, I want you to see Christ more clearly. I want you to enjoy the fellowship of His Holy Spirit more intimately. I want you to have the confidence in your heavenly Father and who He is, what He does, how He rules, how He loves, how He reigns. So we see Jesus, Christ, the Son, says grace and peace to you from Him who is, who was, and who is to come, from the seven spirits before His throne, and from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of the king's of the earth. What a gift from the Trinity. Grace and peace. From the Father, from the Holy Spirit, and from the Christ, the Lord Jesus. We've seen the gift, which is grace and peace. We've seen the givers of the gift. Father, Son, the Holy Spirit. Let's look at the goal. We're going to see the goal in this doxology. Why? Why would God give us grace and peace. In fact, why would God give us anything but hell? Because hell is what we really deserve. Why would a holy God, the triune Godhead, why would He give us grace and peace? Let's read the doxology because I believe that John understands. To Him who loves us, and has freed us from our sins by His blood, and has made us to be a kingdom and priest to serve His God and Father to Him, be glory and power forever and ever. Amen. We see here the goal of grace and peace. What does grace and peace accomplish? 
in the life of the believer. Remember, he's writing to the seven churches. The churches of that day, which also represent the churches of all days. He's writing to us, men. Why? Why would he give us grace and peace? What is the Godhead trying to accomplish through this glorious gift? Number one, the goal of grace and peace is to show His love and to free us from our sin. To show His love and to free us from our sin. John says, to Him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by His blood. Romans 5, 8. It says, but God demonstrates His own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since we have now been justified by His blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through Him? For if when we, for if when we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to Him through the death of His Son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through His life? Not only is this so, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. John says to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood. Why? To show us his love. To show us the freedom that he paid for us to have. God has graciously provided an atoning sacrifice in Christ to free us from our sin. John 8, 36. It says, if the Son sets you free, you're free indeed. You're free indeed. Oh, how thankful we should be that the grace and peace that He has lavished upon us in Jesus Christ and set us free, showing us the love of God, giving us the freedom from sin, we should fall on our face in thanksgiving and in awe. And thank the Son once again for freeing us. And freeing us indeed. He freed us from the power and the penalty of sin. Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death. That's what we deserve. Death and hell. Aren't you glad that it doesn't stop? It says, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. John is giving this word of praise, this doxology to Christ. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood. What is the goal of grace and peace? To show the love of God and to free the wretched sinner from his sin. Isn't this the thrust of the gospel? Wicked sinners who are saved graciously by a loving God who then gives them the peace that transcends all understanding because we have peace with our Creator, because we have peace from our Creator. John goes on to say this, to Him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by His blood and has made us to be a kingdom and priest to serve His God and Father. Not only is the goal of grace and peace to show God's love and to free us from sin, it's also to allow and equip us to serve God. Apart from God's grace and peace that He's offered us, we can't serve Him. We can't minister for Him or minister to Him. We can't be the priest or a part of the kingdom without His grace, without His peace. Is talking about a kingdom of priests to serve and to minister. A kingdom to serve God in obedient love to our Master. Wasn't it a privilege of His grace to be able to do that? To get to serve our Master. Matthew 22, verse 37. The Lord said this, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest 
commandment. It says a kingdom and priests. Let's talk about the kingdom. A kingdom is made up of a master, a lord, and servants. And it is through this gift of grace and peace that was given to us by God that we get to serve our master, to love the Lord our God with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our mind, with all our strength. Kingdom to serve the master. And then he says, and priest. And priest. We don't think about a priesthood very often, but we ought to go back and we ought to think about it in Old Testament terms. The priest would minister for God. He would minister for God. And he would minister to others. And in ministering for God and ministering to others, he was ministering to God. John is praising God here for the fact that Christ has made us a kingdom and priest. A kingdom and priest, a kingdom to follow the master and a priesthood to minister for the master, to minister to others. 1 Peter chapter 2 talks about this priesthood. He says in verse 9, But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God that you may declare the praises of Him who called you out of darkness into His wonderful light. What is the goal of grace? It is to allow and equip us to serve our God. Serve as subjects in His kingdom, and priest in his temple to minister to others. What does that look like? You saw what it looks like to serve him as God. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind. And then it goes on in that same text, Matthew 22, verse 39, and it gets to the other part, the priesthood. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commands. You love your neighbor as yourself, and you will serve them as priests who bring God glory and honor and praise. You will minister to others. And in doing so, you will minister to your Heavenly Father, just as the priesthood in the Old Testament did. We've seen the goal of grace as we wrap this up. The goal of grace and peace. To show His love and, and to free us from sin. To allow and to equip us to serve God. And thirdly, watch what He says at the end of this. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and has made us to be a kingdom and priest to serve his God and Father. To him be glory and power forever and ever. Amen. The third thing is this, the third goal of the triune God blessing us with grace and peace is so that we can bring God glory. To Him be glory and power forever and ever. Amen. Westminster Confession, the shorter catechism to that confession, says this, that the chief end of man is what? To glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. We could not do that in a state of sin. Could not do that in a state of wickedness and rebellion. But it is when God lavishes His grace and His peace upon us in Christ, that we are then restored. God's grace allows us to be restored as vessels to bring Him glory back to our original purpose and God's original intent for man. Ephesians 2, we have already seen it. It's by grace we have been saved through faith. And it's not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. Verse 10 says this, For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. These good works are the works that bring Him glory. Apart from grace and peace, we could do no such thing. It is His grace that allows us to be restored to a position where we can bring God glory. It is His peace that allows us to live with confidence and assurance. Confidence and assurance in what? In Christ. 
In Christ and His finished work. Not, not in anything that we could do or anything that we have to offer. Or any goodness that we think that we could conjure up because we have no good in us. But His peace gives us confidence in Christ and what He did for us at the cross 2,000 years ago. Our confidence and our peace and our rest is in Christ. And this allows us then to live a life that brings God glory as we do His will in Christ. You cannot do His will any other way. It is in Christ that His will is done. Even Jesus in John chapter 15, when He spoke of the vine and the branches, He says this, Apart from Me, you can do nothing. What was he saying? Nothing that's fruitful to the kingdom of God. Nothing that brings God any glory. So what do we do with this? This gift. John says to the seven churches in the province of Asia, grace and peace to you. Grace and peace to you. The gift, the blessing that he is giving and offering is grace and peace. He's offering that grace and peace from the Father, from the Holy Spirit from the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, so that we can then bring Him glory and walk in rest in assurance because of the grace and the peace that He has poured out for us. So I ask you this as we close. Are you a recipient of God's grace and peace? You say, what do you mean? It's for the church. And how do you become a part of the church? Who is He offering this gift to? to the seven churches. And I told you that that seven represents not only those literal churches, but the churches throughout the ages. And the only ones who are in the church, I'm not talking about because you filled out a card or you come into a building. I'm talking about because you have surrendered to the sacrifice of Jesus Christ by faith, trusting in Him as Lord and Savior and as the only payment for your sin that makes you right or justified with a holy God. Have you surrendered to Christ? Is this offer of grace and peace for you? Or are you forfeiting grace and peace and forgiveness and eternal life and rest for your weary soul so that you can hold on to temporary sin and one day face the wrath and judgment of God? We start the revelation and He's offering grace and peace to all of those who are in the church. I would encourage you if you are not in the church through surrendering by faith to Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, my prayer for you is this, that before you leave this building tonight, you find you a place and you get alone with God and you call on Him. Because the Bible says, for whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord, His name is Jesus. We've talked a lot about Him tonight. Call on Him. Cry out to Him in desperation, seeing that you are a sinner, that He is the only Savior, and receive the grace and peace that the Godhead desires for you to have. Let's pray together. Father, we love you. Holy Spirit, we thank you for your power, your indwelling power in us. That sevenfold spirit, those elements that you allow us to partake of because we are in Christ. We thank you that it's only because of your grace, and it's only because of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ that we can testify to that and we can thank you for that tonight. When I pray for the soul who's here, does not know Christ, I pray, Lord Jesus, that by your grace and your mercy you would rescue them tonight. God, I thank you for the words of Scripture. I thank you. You have offered us grace and peace if we are in Christ. Lord, we know that in the coming days we are going to read a lot about judgment and wrath and tribulation. Lord, I am so thankful that this book is not about judgment and wrath and tribulation all by itself. That you saw fit to begin this glorious book reminding us of grace and peace from the Father, from the Spirit, from the Son. May we rest in that. 
May you be glorified in our lives. And we pray and we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. We hope that you have grown through the teaching of God's Word. If you would like to find out more information about Key Life Fellowship, visit our website, keylifefellowship.com, or you can email us at info at keylifefellowship.org. We would love for you to join us in person. Our men's Bible study meets every Thursday night at 7 p.m. here at the Key Life Fellowship campus located in New Caney, Texas. Or feel free to join us at one of our Sunday worship services as well. As we conclude today's lesson, I will leave you with one reminder. Go out and be the light in a lost, dark world.